Welcome everyone to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson. I have the privilege every week of meeting with and helping accelerate the growth of senior leadership teams. CEOs, you know, it's lonely at the top. And who do you talk to? Well, that would be me. I'm the chief executive coach and I help executives who are in the C-suite accelerate the kind of change, but really get the kind of support they need to make that change happen. And there's probably no one who's been more extraordinary in transforming an industry that's gone through hell and back. He would be the restaurant industry. The star chef, David Chang, and his CEO, Marguerite Mariscal, have transformed the way you think about the accessibility, enjoyment, and excitement of a restaurant brand and cuisine. Today, we'll be talking with Dave and Marge about how they've gone through the crisis, how they've rethought the way you build cuisine and relationships in an industry that's gone through extraordinary change. Listen to my friends Dave and Marge talk about the world of Momofuku. So I'm here with David and Marge, and I wanted to talk with you both about the journey of, of what it's like to start a business, and particularly when things are difficult. Um, when, when, when you're thinking about how you might build a, a career or a passion into something that you'd like to do for a living. Um, you know, David, you, you had a, a vision for the way you wanted to, to present cuisine and introduce new ideas in a very fresh way. Uh, do, you, do you have any recollections of what was going through your head when you were starting uh, the, the journey you're on right now? Um, and what you kind of wish you knew then that you know now about <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, just to give an example of how little I knew about opening a restaurant or starting a business, I, I was completely dumbfounded and shocked at sales tax. <laughs> I, I was like, I was like, oh, this is great! And I was so shocked that I was like behind payments to New York State because I had to pay this. Like, it just didn't even like dawn on me. Like, I literally had to learn accounting. I had to do all these basics that I think a lot of people already knew. I had no idea about any of the stuff. So, mm. um, you know, I didn't really have any goals other than just opening a restaurant. And then when you open the restaurant, you're like, oh my goodness, I, I, I had no idea what I was signing up for. I literally had no idea. It was certainly tied by some lofty ideals of making great food affordable and accessible. But outside of that, I had no know-how whatsoever. And, and so what happened? I mean, what was the journey? Uh, what were the steps that you take? You started cooking and you started selling the yeah. idea of what you could do well, differently than others. Well, I learned, again, necessity is the mother of all invention. It was like, oh, if, if we don't pay the bills, we're going out of business and we're going to lose everything. And um, that was the prospect of failure um, really got me moving. <laughs> and then... <laughs> Uh, you know, certainly the idea of embarrassment, like, oh, if I try this, it's not going to work. Or what if we put this on the menu? Like, it'll be such an embarrassment. Like, people will laugh at us. And then you realize actually what's most important. Like, who cares? Make it work. As long as it's within a moral boundary where no one's getting hurt, everything's <laughs> on the table. And, and that's what we decided to do was to throw the rule book out the window and, and just to start from scratch. How could you be so driven by fear and yet be so optimistic and have 
all this hubris to want to go out there and, and have impact. What, what, what gave you such a big self-concept at the same time you were terrified of failure? It's an interesting paradox we often see with entrepreneurs. Um, because you're, you're talking to someone that has like, it's this weird combination of absolutely no confidence whatsoever, but total confidence in an absurd idea. <laughs> mm, right. And, and it was like, well, when the, when the chips are, are stacked against us, when you can almost accept the losing because it's the most rational, thoughtful outcome, you're like, okay, like then, 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 then we can try anything because we're going to lose anyways. So that, I don't know how to articulate it other than we're, we're, we were constantly, you know, painting ourselves in a corner and we found a way out because there was no other option. And, and, you know, I wouldn't even say it's hubris. It was literally just stupidity. <laughs> it was just like, well, uh, well, you know, let's just try it. Let's who cares? It's a, it's a very, it, when was it in your childhood that you got this penchant for taking risks? Um, I did and it. Trying I did it. You got this. Zero, zero risk taking whatsoever up until I opened up the restaurant. <laughs> so you found your mojo and then you caught this bug uh, and you were infected with this, this both a capacity, but also this, this huge need to just swing for the fences. Well, yeah. I mean, part, part of it was, you know, we, we have a book coming out, uh, you know, depending on this epidemic, but, um, you know, I talk about a little bit about how I was a wallflower for the most of my life. I played competitive golf and uh, was an athlete and did all these things, but I was always reserved because I was always in my mind said, like, I'm not the kind of person that's going to be successful in these certain fields, right? So becoming a cook was like joining a pirate ship. I was, uh, you know, I realized like, wait, maybe I should not try to fit in, but just fit in with the people that don't fit in. And that's sort of what cooking was for me, not because I was trying to make money or anything. It was just like, maybe this is a, a, a life that I could find uh, redeemable in somehow. And I didn't really develop as a person until I was in my like 26, when I, when I had to not be me anymore. And you know, I was, I was going through a lot of issues, personally, depression, and just sort of racked with self-doubt. And I had what would be the equivalent of, of like a existential like dilemma, like a real life-changing moment of like, what do I do with my life? And mm -hmm. when you're sort of faced with sort of the prospect as, as, as hyperbolic as it sounds of life and death, you're like, who, who cares? So I just, I decided to like not follow the template that was given to me and just to do whatever the hell I wanted to do in a very selfish way. And, mm. and that's how I honestly started to learn. I learned about myself and I learned about the world in different ways. You know, when, when you started on that process, you got to know what it meant to be expressing yourself creatively. Uh, and then when you start to try to open restaurants and do it at scale, um, and Margie, if you could weigh in on this too, it's a matter of then starting to be able to harness creative people um, and, and, and help them find some ownership in this vision that you had for what, what you wanted to cook up and wanted, you wanted to serve the world. Um, how do you go about you know, recruiting the best creative people and, and, uh, and, and how, do you, how do you get them kind of engaged uh, in that vision? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's been, you know, as Momofuku grew, the most interesting part has been how do you translate a lot of this? And, and we're not, I think, a typical restaurant group, and it would probably be easier if we had every recipe down to the gram and, you know, each concept was exactly like the other. But the way that we've been able to find success is by having each concept follow its own molds. And a lot of times it's Dave helping the executive chef of the restaurant kind of find their uh, contribution, their vision, like what they uh, want to put out. And that process, I mean, Dave can be the first to attest, is not an easy process by any means. Right, um, right. Uh, not just, you know, it, it's honestly the technical aspect is not at all the issue. It's getting someone to that place um, that Dave just described where they can be creative and, and not kind of hampered in by, by whether it's what they think it's supposed to be, what they think the expectation of the restaurant is or the customer. Um, and, and that's been where, you know, Dave, as, as we've grown, has spent a good, good amount of his time just because that process is, is the hardest, hardest part of all of this, I'd say. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Mar Marge has been a great translator uh, of this process, and, and that's why she knows Momofuku in so many ways better than me. And like the best way I could describe it is it's, it's, it's uh, for the creative process, trying to find people that want to get over their stage fright of being creative. Mm. And, and I, I, I like if you ask me to karaoke right now in front of people, I can't do it. You know, it's that same kind of inhibition that prevents people from trying to do it. And they come up with every excuse not to actually do the work. And I actually found there's probably some correlation in my mind is the more talented you are and the more you can actually sort of imagine an outcome, the less likely you are to actually try it. And that actually prevents you from growing. And in this business, we're not asking you to be an electrical engineer or a rocket scientist. We're asking you to accumulate as, much, as many scenarios and decisions as possible. And one of the reasons why I genuinely love this business for all its absurdity is it's hard work and the actual act of doing something is the great equalizer versus talent. And, mm. and that's what I love is someone may not have the aptitude in a certain bucket in cooking, but they're, they're a better coach than they are a player, you know, and, and you find these things out. Um, and, 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 and honestly, that's always the case. The best cooks, in my opinion, rarely ever make the best chefs. Interesting. Yeah. So they end up coaching others. Is that what you mean? And building a team that can deliver on that culinary vision or that restaurant yeah. format? I mean, Marge, you can, you, you can explain this too, but if you're really talented, you never, I mean, empathy is the thing that we talk about in Momofuku a lot. And yeah. it's, it's the skill set they don't teach you in cooking school. And if you don't have the ability to think outside yourself, how are you going to know what a customer actually wants? But more specifically, as a teacher, if you were too good at, at executing a dish, um, you're never going to try to see perspectives of someone that is not as talented as they struggle through something. You're just going to get frustrated as to why they can't do it as good as you. And it takes someone with empathy to sort of see step by step. So maybe they won't be the best actual cook but you need someone to put it all together in synchronization with the other team members. And that's the incredibly valuable skill set. And that's what we look for, for leadership and creatives, uh, creatives in our, in our, in our business. Yeah. I mean, I, 
Mark, we talk about this a lot. Like we are 1000% not a company that looks for, you know, A plus players, right? That, that there is this skill set you need. All of those things are the things that we actually find to be teachable. It's as Dave said, it's like a willingness to learn, a willingness to, you know, screw up and try again. If you have those kind of founding principles, then everyone can get better and grow. And I think, you know, obviously this, this pandemic is going to change a lot, but prior to it, um, you know, there was a, a real glut of restaurants and uh, a real shortage of talent. And so if you were just looking for A-plus players, you were ultimately going to lose anyway, because the only way to grow uh, and to open more uh, restaurants uh, and to be a better group is to teach and to grow internally. Um, and, you know, you can't get there by, by just trying to select, you know, the, the best players that, um, as Dave said, might technically be there, but don't have the heart or the empathy to, to be a long-term impact on the company. Nobody does it alone, uh, and everybody has a role in that in that in building that dream. Uh, Dave, how did you go about picking Marge uh, to be the partner uh, to execute on this on this vision? It's a, a very difficult thing often when founders pick professional management uh, and then have a partnership that you know has a deep understanding of where the vision of the company goes, and and it's also hard to compete for people like Marge who who have uh, the opportunity to do many different things, having come from a great tradition of, of people in the food business. You know, we, we've been really blessed to have some of the best and brightest, not just in the restaurant industry, but I think any industry uh, across the board. So when Marge came aboard uh, as an intern, you know, pretty quickly I noticed her because she kept on showing up at events that she wasn't even supposed to be at. <laughs> and there was just this hustle and, and, and eagerness to, 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 to see the, the work through. And to me, that's like, that's, that's like rule number one is, is be everywhere you can and just sort of absorb everything. And then, you know, as, as Marge continued to come back and, and she came back after her internship and she stayed on board and uh, she was in the PR marketing team in social media. So I got to see a lot of her work and it always went above and beyond. So she would be the facilitator, the glue that wanted to do whatever it took, whether it was in her uh, division or department or not, how can she make this decision or whatever we're doing better for the entire company? And she was the glue and she immediately gained the respect of all the chefs. And that's a hard thing to do in Momofuku. So right off the bat, I just saw that she was, she, she was different. And I think age has sort of nothing to do with it, right? You could be 80 years old, but have the maturity and wisdom of a 25 year old if you chosen to live the same life experiences. And I felt that Marge was someone that was, you know, a heat seeking missile for the new constantly. And at a relatively young age, I felt that she saw more hands of poker than anyone else. <laughs> So it was, right. a, it was a no brainer for me because at the end of the day, I was, we were not betting, including the board that Marge was going to be a fully formed CEO. But that's the thing is we're going to, we're going to take the chance on the individuals that we believe number one, first and foremost, you know, have the integrity and integrity in my world, in our restaurant is defined as, can you make the right decision under duress? And, mm -hmm. and without putting yourself first. Right. And, and, and that doesn't mean you can't be stressed. That doesn't mean you can't be panicked, but will you make it through with the right decision? 
and understanding that that right decision might be something that changes you might regret but are you constantly moving that decision forward to make it right so in retrospect when you connect the dots it looked like it made sense and someone like marge to me is in, just so so hard on herself right and i think like myself that's both of our weaknesses is we're too goddamn hard on ourselves but marge to me was someone that was going to do everything she could to make the right decision. And I think that's a rarity in this world. Well, uh, Marge, you're, you're an extraordinary talent. Um, how did you go about making the decision to, to partner with the, the, this, this chef uh, who's cooking up all these new ideas and, and huge, huge ambitions? <laughs> um, well, I mean, I, I think what's so fascinating about right now is that in a, in a lot of ways, you know, when Dave and I talk about reopening restaurants, you know, it, it's going to be, it has to be completely different from what we left. And, and that's both for the sake of our employees, that's for the sake of the industry. Um, and when I uh, applied for this intern, this fateful internship uh, all those years ago, um, I, I wanted to work at Momofuku not because of the restaurants. I mean, I loved the restaurants, I'd gone to the restaurants, um, but, you know, I think Dave and, and Momofuku is really at the forefront of, you know, if you, I'm sure you can find a quote from 2010, 2011 of Dave saying, if I don't operate restaurants in five years, I'm okay with that. It was more about this uh, grander, as, as you said, Mark, mm. like aspiration um, of what was possible. And restaurants were a piece of that lucky peach. The magazine was also happening at the same time. Um, you know, the, the, I, I started the week that Dave opened a restaurant in Sydney, Australia. And at that point, there was no restaurant outside of Manhattan. So it was definitely like not approaching it from a linear path or, or a traditional model. And that's, I think, was the most interesting to me. And, you know, obviously, if you look at what's happening now in, in food and hospitality and restaurants, that's more prevalent and more important than ever. Like, everyone needs to think outside the box. Uh, everyone needs to find kind of a new path forward. So in a lot of ways, whatever originally got us here is, is you know, even more relevant. Um, but mm. I don't know, I, I think that that has always been what Momofuku's been about. And, you know, I think where I come in is helping to, um, as you said, as we grow, as we start new business units, as we open new restaurants, how do you make sure that that, that original intent isn't lost? And that gets harder and harder the bigger you get. Um, and so trying to creatively find ways that we can grow and better provide for our employees, but not lose track of that original, uh, uh, you know, message. Um, because I think once we do that, then, then, you know, it all kind of falls apart from there. So um, how do we take what Dave originally wanted and, and grow and expand that and make it um, something that's possible for, for not just Dave, not myself, but, but everyone that works at Mulcahy. I, I think about the, the work that you've been doing, uh, uh, both of you in media and in uh, consumer products to further scale the vision and to be able to touch more people um, and, and help, you know, help uh, consumers who might experience the restaurants or being able to experience the, the way you show up creatively to, to encourage people to cook and, and have a vision for that. Could you talk a little bit about this, uh, that the moves towards getting scale beyond the original uh, program of, in this case, restaurants, to, to be able to move both into the areas of media, CPG, other areas? How, how are you defining that? Sure. Um, I mean, I think 
prior to, to the current circumstance, um, operating restaurants has always been an extremely, extremely uh, thin margin business. Um, and then that has gotten worse and worse every year as rent's gone up, uh, labor's gone up, basically everything's gone up, but people's willingness to pay more for food has not really increased substantially. And so because mm. of that, you have a model that is getting every year less tenable. Um, and so we've always kind of looked at how do we have the restaurants and have them basically be the showcase. You know, I, I look at a lot of like D to C brands that have a physical storefront and that physical storefront is basically marketing for the brand, for uh, mm -hmm. the product. And the reality is when you look at how restaurants operate, if you're doing it the way that we do it, not, you know, a mass on, on mass scale um, uh, and very cookie cutter, it's it's not too far off. It's very much like the margins are pretty similar to a marketing exercise. Um, mm. And so, you know, how do we complement that? How do we diversify, uh, especially now with people not being able to dine in our, our restaurants? How do we provide that same experience, that same intent, but in a format in which is accessible right now? So we're working mm -hmm. on, uh, we launched these season salts. Uh, we're working on some additional products um, that will help uh, home cooks. Um, but, you know, and I think this, this goes back to, to Dave's original message. Um, we're not making any product that we wouldn't use ourselves in our restaurant. So it's extremely important to us that everything we're putting out there, you know, is something that we stand behind 100%. I always say, like, we don't have some restaurant in, like, the Cayman Islands you don't know about. Dave doesn't have a soup with his face on it. Like, everything we do is very... Um, you know, we're a hundred percent behind. And so we want to make sure that we have products that are both as exciting to one of our executive chefs as it is to a home cook. And I think if we can kind of thread that needle, um, we can do this in a way that that is a symbiotic relationship between the restaurants and the home and not two, you know, different business streams. Mm -hmm. Dave, this must feel very rewarding to feel that you can uh, infect people with a sense of empowerment and in, in cooking and, and kind of raise the bar um, in lot, all sorts of cultural uh, aspects in terms of cooking uh, with the, the right ingredient, ingredients. How, how are you feeling about that? And is that kind of influencing the way you're doing in media right now and, and getting, uh, you know, generations of people cooking? Uh, like me, for example, to do it poorly, <laughs> at least. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think early on we realized whenever we sort of figured out that Momofuku was was going to survive and, and do well, we're talking now, what, 13, 14, 15 years ago, then yeah. whatever we were deciding to do, uh, like, seemed to always, like, tap into the cultural zeitgeist. And... A lot of that was right timing, but I think a lot of that was just sort of doing some calculations or using our intuitions of what, what we thought might work. And we saw a lot of these decisions that we made turn out to have like pretty dramatic impacts on culture, uh, whether yeah. people ate, drink, or what they bought, you know, the yeah. architecture. It was just like, you know, restaurants are cultural banks that influence so many different parts of society. And... I think that once we decided to do media, whether it be, you know, we didn't even decide to do a TV show. That first thing was with uh, Tony Bourdain doing um, what was Lucky Peach that turned into Mind of a Chef. Right. They were all extensions of what the restaurant was, which was, again, like less to do about food and more to do about whatever Momofuku was about. And, you know, I, I think we're still figuring that out as in, in this transition period, but 
you know, something that Marge saw pretty early on was once you have that brand value that is so hard, and we did it by sheer accident, you know, people trust us. It's an it's a unwritten contract that, you know, hey, what do you think is good and, and, and tell us. And which one of the reasons why we named our, our media company and our restaurant in LA called Major Domo, you know, which is mm -hmm. trans, basically translates to like, I, I'm the head of your house. I'm going to tell you what to do. And, and, and that was all the extension of the media. So when we did Lucky Peach, that was again, aligned with what Momofuku was going to be something new, something innovative, a fresh take. And I think that sort of spirit hasn't left any of this projects that are not within the four walls of a restaurant. And how do we turn this into something that is not just predicated on restaurant success? How, how are you so both, both so driven by reinvention? Obviously crises like this force us to do things that, you know, I might not otherwise have the moral courage to do. I've been talking to, to over a dozen business leaders who are, getting stuff done in the two month period that they really needed to do for two years or maybe two decades. But this is how you both seem to be wired. Uh, how, how is it that you, that you are constantly kind of tapping or leading the next consumer trend in that regard? Um, I mean, I think one thing which, which, you know, I think was a, a huge learning lesson for me, um, is I remember, you know, back in, let's call it 2014, uh, where I was, I think my title was like design manager or something like that. And, and we were building restaurants and the, the people in charge were saying, oh, okay, we're building a new restaurant. So, uh, you know, it has to look like a Momofuku. So it's going to have backless stools. It's going to have loud music. It's going to have things because that's what Momofuku is. And I think I, I realized really early on that like, what Momofuku is, is to like never make assumptions like that. It's to say for this location, for this uh, concept, for this price point, what should this space be? And I think there was kind of uh, a little bit of autopilot on where it was like this worked here, so it's gonna work there. And you know, we learned the hard way that, that that's not true, right? Like we had, um, uh, we opened in Toronto and we had uh, our, our uh, team at Noodle Bar in New York go up and train everyone in Toronto. And we basically were told that we had to completely retrain everyone because everyone in New York was not nice <laughs> compared to what people expected in Toronto. And so it was just like a really good example of like, you know, you, you, you know, it's not, I don't, I think it's maybe too generous to say that it's forward thinking. I think it's just looking at data points and being honest with yourself and saying like, does this work? Um, you know, is there a reason to do it again? Is there a reason to change it the next time? And just being really hard on yourself as to like how you're making decisions. Um, so I don't know. I just think that that to me, Momofuku is, is, is innovation. That's what it is. It is changing things uh, as you go. And if you ever start saying that this thing is so Momofuku or that thing is Momofuku, it's inherently wrong <laughs> because uh, it, it goes against, I think, what, what we're trying to do, which is to kind of keep moving forward. David, when you think about that, um, that, that, that sense of reinvention and that there is no Momofuku of Momofuku, um, the, how, do, how, do you, how do you look for that in, in people who you can sign up for that, that journey? Again, I think it's, it deals with self-awareness and, 
you know, it, it's not so different. When I, I read something about Bill Belichick that he looks in football players of the New England Patriots, and I found it to be the exact same thing that we try to find in Momofuku. Number one is, do they love the game, right? Do they, do they love being in the business? Two, it's like, are they harder on themselves than anyone else? You know, like, that's it. Like, yeah. you never have to reprimand someone that is, like, in it because they've already beaten you the punch. They've already addressed the issues. And third, are they, like, are they committed to being a team player? Is it, a, you know, like, if someone is just worried about their own uh, station, their own sort of, you can see it pretty clearly, right? Like, you know, I, I look for something whenever I go to In-N-Out, right? The great burger chain. I always look for someone that drops something and because it's always busy there and someone else picks it up, right? Without telling, yeah. hey, hey, buddy, you dropped this. You know, you dropped this piece of lettuce. They just pick it up and they go on because they know one day or even later that day, they may drop something and they need to have someone look after their back. And when you have that sort of, teamwork camaraderie it's a beautiful thing and that's what gets me moving and excited and when you have that then a lot of things can happen so when you uh, when, when you think about the, the the journey you went at march with the family-run business um how, how does this compare how does what what you and dave have been talking about uh, compare with a kind of a long tradition of family businesses the most businesses are run by families. In a sense, David, you started it that way. Um, Marge, you, you know what that all means. You've been stocking shelves since probably before you can remember. Uh, how does this compare? I, I mean, I think it's something that I'd never really thought about until more recently uh, when Dave and I have had to make some like really tough decisions is like, I think inevitably and, and you know, just whether it's a family business or whether it's the, you know, a founder business, you have to look at things on such a longer trajectory than, you know, uh, uh, maybe a traditional business model, because any decision you're making, you know, even if it's extremely tough and, you know, you have to let someone go that is an extremely valued employee uh, and contributes to the company, but did something that, that, you know, goes against our standards, goes against our, uh, uh, our, our code, you have to make that decision because we're not making decisions for the next six months. We're not making decisions for the next year. We're making decisions so that this company can exist in 20 years, like, you know, God bless. Mm. And so I just feel like it kind of warps your perspective in that you have to think long because, you know, for example, like coming from a family business, you have to think about the fact that your name is on the door. You have to think about the fact that like, this is something that is uh, institutional to your, to your, you know, uh, entire family. So you can't make quick decisions. You can't make uh, uh, calls that are going to maybe have a negative effect in one year, two years, three years. You have to kind of uh, have this longer trajectory. And I think whenever, you know, Dave and I talk about Mokofuku, we're always looking at it from that lens. It's always looking at it in terms of, well, how is this going to impact, uh, you know, X years out? Because that's the expectation and that's the, uh, the like code that we, we abide by. Mm-hmm. When I think about Dave, uh, the, Charles Schwab was my mentor for a dozen years. I worked for him when he was buying himself back. Uh, we, we listed on the stock exchange and um, we were so proud because we just bought ourselves back from Bank of America that at the time was the biggest bank in the world. 
and we did the first management-led buyback and got it approved by the regulators in the SEC. And it was with such pride, we went public on the New York Stock Exchange October 1st, 1987. Uh, followed three weeks later by a, an event that's still memorable. Uh, and it took five full years before we recovered to our IPO price. Five years. So the first thing I did, I had just arrived at the company. The first thing I did is we took um, pay cuts and we, you know, created a long-term incentive plan because the stock really wasn't worth anything. And nobody's want to do a brokerage uh, company at a at a time like this. Um, you know, how do you how do you think about uh, persistence and resilience? Um, because it's it's not for two of you. It's not your first rodeo. Although this is certainly not like anything any of us have experienced in the past. Um, how, how do you think about that? It's constantly that way, isn't it? You know, I, I'll be honest. There's not a day that goes by, and I, I know Marge probably might feel the same way, where I, there's, and I felt this way even b before the coronavirus epidemic. Yes. It's always about yes. five, five minutes to ten minutes where I'm like, I can't do this. It's too, it's, it's too goddamn hard. And yeah. And then it's like, that's how I start my day, almost. Like my day doesn't start until I quit in my head. And then I like, I do these ruminations and I'm like, oh. Oh, and it's like, it's weird. It's like I start this, like this weird maze in my head. And then when I get to the other side, I'm like, oh. I don't even say I can't do this. I'm just like, oh, what's next? And that's, that's how it begins. And it's, it's a very Sisyphean like, task is to literally embrace the absurd the only choice i have is to rebel against the situation that is presented to me and mm. and I, I genuinely believe that and, and 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 that could mean in a variety of situations and that's the freedom of choice that i have is no matter how difficult the obstacle is and i'm not saying i don't want to quit but i just have to like want it a little bit more than i want to quit <laughs> and that's how i get to the next day it's not words of inspiration, I know, but I think you got to be honest. This is this is brutal. This is really hard. And I think Marge and I are, you know, if you talked to us three weeks ago, we, we there were a lot of tears. There were a lot yeah. of tears. I'm not saying they're not still tears, but I feel like we've come out the <laughs> other side of like, oh, we're presented with a, a, a situation that's never happened in modern times, at least in 100 years. Um we got to do whatever we can to make sure that our restaurants and the independent restaurant that, that make up this great country, they don't turn out like Lehman brothers. So mm -hmm. we, we got to do whatever we have to do. And that, that may mean the government may not actually come to our side. Fine. No more excuses. We're not waiting for anyone to save us. We got to bootstrap this and we got to figure this out on our own. And thankfully, we have a lot of resources, including you, Mark, to help us out. But we have to realize what we do have, not what we don't have, as cliche as that sounds. And if we fail, if it all winds up as total failure, hey, it's been a great run. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's such a good point. And it's, it, it's, it's a hell of a mantra to start every day. <laughs> uh, uh, that way, uh, and and yet it's 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 a better, uh, perhaps more realistic representation of how we actually feel. Because uh, you got to own that first before you can ever decide to do something that's constructive. 
Uh, it's literally, or, it's or, literally every day, Mark. And by the time it's like eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, I'm like, oh, ah, really tired. All I want to do is go to sleep. Start it up okay. the next day. Yeah. That's why I called you at exactly that time. Just when you've gone through the Ark of the Covenant there, through the Valley of Death, he emerges. <laughs> That's where March takes the ball exactly. all the way into the end zone. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's what we count on her for. for. Um, what is your hope for with your book, David? That's um, coming very close here. What, what's, uh, just give us a quick uh, overview of what that means and, and uh, how how you're hoping to, it contributes to this constructive legacy, this creative legacy you're talking about. Well, you know, in, in, in one ways, it's, I think, to talk about the, the Korean American experience. Um, I never thought in my wildest dreams that I would be sort of representation for Asian Americans in general. Uh, and for a long time, I think I avoided that, that responsibility. Mm. Until <laughs> one of my good friends literally said, David, nobody in their right minds would have chosen you to represent Asian Americans. <laughs> You're the last person anyone would have chosen. But the fact is you have these opportunities, so don't screw it up. And, you know, and, 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 and I just would get a lot of like remarks from kids that were like, hey, like really respect what you're doing. I don't even like your food, but I respect what you're doing, <laughs> you know? And I was like, oh. And, and, and so, so part of that was, is like a lot of my struggles was not having, um, you know, any kind of representation growing up and seeing that there were other ways to, to, to live one's life. And, and it covers a little bit about that. It covers the culinary world. Um, and, 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 and honestly, it covers a lot of the things, not, not too deep, because I think it's been covered in other books, but basically covers the, the absurdity of the culinary profession. And, and hopefully it, it moving forward in a post-COVID world, we can look back and say, okay, well, that was nice that that happened. Not nice. Let's not inherit any of these things moving forward. Um, and, and I think lastly, I think it's, it's something that I, I've talked a lot more openly about was my sort of my, my, my battles with my own demons and depression and, and how all of these things that sort of like I've, I've like these three immovable objects that I've really battled in my life have actually become a springboard if I just looked at it in a different light. And mm -hmm. And I never thought in my wildest dreams, again, I'd write a book, let alone anyone would read it. So uh, it's something we worked on. And I said, if, and if, if this is going to be the book, you know, you think that you're going to be able to write every single moment of your life. But it's not. You have to still present it in some kind of perspective that people want to read. And, and, and that's been a, a challenge. But at the end of the day, it's how do you write something that allows someone to take something from, from it? And, and, and I think there's a lot of dark moments in this book. And, and as you can see with my life affirming advice of five to 10 minutes of trying to quit every day, <laughs> it, 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 it's, I think it's okay to accept there's diversity. Not everyone has to be, you know, a cup of sunshine 24 seven. And I think it's just a, it's just my story and what works for me only works for me. And it's not prescriptive in any other way other than, you know, if you're presented with an op opportunity and no matter how much I complain about not winning the genetic lotto, I won the genetic lotto. You know, like, I wish I could have a lot of different things, but at the end of the day, I was, I, w I was born as healthy as can be, and I was presented with a lot of opportunities, 
And I just refused to use that as excuse for not at least trying to do something. And then next thing you know, it's not about me anymore. It's about a journey about a group of individuals that's created Momofuku, that we have someone like Marguerite that's, you know, I always say like for, uh, for Momofuku to get wiser and more mature, we had to get younger. <laughs> yes. And, and, and it's, it's a team effort. And I think that's what I, I, I like most about it is it, it tells a story about where we're going. And again, like we hope that it's the, the best possible scenario. We are okay with failure. We're encouraging of failure. We just don't want to land in the middle. <laughs> that's right. Um, and that's Hugo uh, telling yeah. us that, that he's the next generation and that he's going to own the future and he'll be the judge of this incredible legacy that David Ching and Daddy leaves. Um, right. March, just, just uh, to, to close this out, could you tell us kind of what you wish you knew when you took the role of chief executive that you, that you know now? Uh, uh, it's, it's not, it, in a sense, it's dog years, isn't it? That's the way I talk to most people who have that role. <laughs> Time seven, at least. Uh, t- tell us, what, what, what would you advise uh, a newcomer uh, taking that seat, especially working with a, a charismatic, brilliant founder, um, who is uh, you know, driven to continue to change the world in his own way. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think this was true pre, pre uh, the current situation and, and the hardships that that's brought, um, but I think it's really kind of shown a light on, on what I was told many times by Dave, was told many times, I'm sure by you, Mark, but you know, it's, <laughs> there's, you can't, it's, we're in such an insane time right now that, that there is no right answer, right? Or we can try our hardest to get to the best solution. We can try to make the most of our employees happy or whatever you know that is. But at the end of the day, someone's going to be unhappy with you. Someone's going to be mad at you. Someone is not going to uh, see or understand what you were doing. And you just have to take it. You just have to be okay with and, and feel grounded that you're making the best decisions you can and, and let that be enough. And some days, you know, as Dave says, it doesn't feel like enough. <laughs> Sometimes it's really tough to kind of keep, keep going on that trajectory. But, um, you know, we've had to make some really tough decisions over the past two months. Uh, and, and honestly, just seeing how all this is unfolding, you know, we're not anywhere near out of it, right? We're, we're talking, you know, uh, six months, a year, you know, 18 months more of, of kind of navigating through this and just knowing that uh, you have to be able to answer to yourself, you know, have to, I have to be able to answer to our employees and, and to Dave. And then other than that, you just have to let that be enough to, to keep going. Um, you're not, if they're not going to get, uh, you know, all thumbs up, uh, <laughs> you know, in, in this uh, uh, pandemic. So you've got to take what you can get. You know, Mark, I, I want to add something I, I've told Mar, uh, Marge too, and I think it might be good advice for anyone because I, I, I just I th- think it's hard not to use it. And, you know, I think the worst thing that you can do is have indecision in this moment. And, 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 and I don't know who said it, but, you know, paraphrasing, managers wait for, for, for decisions to be made for them and, and leaders, you know, sort of take a leap of faith with the, with the best sort of data that's around them. And, I think when we had to make some pretty tough choices the past couple of months, uh, we were racked with indecision. You know, your initial reaction is, man, I hope someone else 
makes this decision for us. Um, but the reality is, you know, this trolley car problem that, you know, you, I learned in college, right? It's, it's whatever decision you make, someone's going to lose. And you have to make the lesser of two evils. And you're going to be criticized no matter what. And I think that's the burden of leadership. And I think the thing that I've told myself and Marge repeatedly was we have to take this pragmatic approach of what is most useful right now. That is our guiding principle for truth. And that doesn't mean that it cannot change um, because with more information, with more experience, we, we might have made a different decision, but we have to do the best with that, with, with, with that at our disposal. And Dave, you're on mute. Dave, you went on mute. Oh, sorry, yeah. sorry. If we continue the to make decisions at your disposal, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if we continue to make these decisions that critics are sort of saying, hey, that's a horrible choice. Why did you do that? We have to sort of trust the process and then continue to sort of breathe life into these things. And then again, my internal weirdness, this is how I'm like motivated, is that in four to five years, when we made the right decision, right? And it's, it may be an accumulation of many decisions. The person that was a critic privately will say they were right and I was wrong, but they will never make it public. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. There's no, there's, there's vindication in the facts perhaps and in the history and the future, but uh, probably not directly from anyone that we needed from. <laughs> right. It's, it's impossible to connect the dots now. Right. Yeah. You just have to continue to, to just to, 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 to carry on and hopefully you're making the right decisions possible. And I think that we are. Well, I think that both of you are, and it's been, it's, it's been such a privilege to be able to work with you and learn from you and to see how um, you, you really turned, uh, you've been turning a vision for having cultural impact um, and changing the way people uh, experience food and, and the way they actually bring it into their lives is it's a higher mission. You don't see it very often and you've changed our concept of what that means. So I, I want to thank you, you know, both for carrying that torch because this is the time when there's a precious few of you who can really do that and make a, and make a big difference. So um, really real privilege to, to know you guys and to work with you in this, in this journey. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us Mark. Thanks for listening to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson, and please don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes every week.